0: So tonight we're going to read a passage from Samuel. The page is page 271 in your Bible. The passage is Samuel 1, verse 1 to 28. So again, page 271. There was a certain man from Ramathim, a Sufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. (coughs) One was called Hannah, and the other, Benaina. Benaina had children, but Hannah, had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Opni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But, to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, a rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, a rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, which said to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her her son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. And she kept on praying to the Lord. Eli also her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah I replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I ask the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord and he will live there, always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good of his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was wined, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, and Ifa ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had, to, had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you, praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he shall be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there.
1: Thank you, Martine. For Please do, if you can, keep your Bibles open, page 271. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord, we just sung earlier, your word is a light to our... Unfolding of your word it's the unfolding of your word that gives light and makes the simple wise speak to us now unfold your word for us so that we simple and in the dark might have your light and your wisdom in jesus name amen i wonder if you think you are living through any world changing events i mean things change all the time don't they Cream eggs have gotten worse. I'm not talking about that kind of change, but big changes. The kind of changes that people talk about for centuries and centuries. Do you know the kind of thing I mean? The the discovery of fire. The invention of the wheel. The kind of changes that mean that nothing afterwards can ever be the same. Do you think we're living through changes like that? Maybe, Maybe the internet? Who knows? Well, we're starting a series in 1 Samuel. And it's really one big book along with 2 Samuel, And it's a book telling us about that kind of massive, significant, historic change. That's what we're going to see as we come to 1 Samuel. Now, where are we in the Bible? We're in the days of the Judges, if you know the book of the Judges. And God has promises to keep. He promised Abraham that his descendants would become a nation. Check, they have. He promised they would dwell in the land of Canaan. Check, they do. He also promised that they would know his blessing. Do they? Not really. If you know the book of Judges, they are not experiencing the blessing of God. They are threatened by the nations around them and plagued by sin and injustice within. And through that book, yes, from time to time, God raises up judges who who will help them, who'll secure them against their enemies, who'll bring them back to God. But the book goes from bad to worse and the last words of the book of Judges are in those days there was no king in the land of Israel everyone did what was right in their own eyes and so that's where 1 and 2 Samuel begins but it's not where it's going to end yes it begins with the tribes of Israel scattered and oppressed but it will end with the people of God united under God's anointed king It will begin with the ark of God in a temporary home and Israel's worship in complete disarray. But it will end with the ark of God in Jerusalem and everything in place for God to build a temple where he will put his name and his people to worship him. So 1 and 2 Samuel is telling us a big story about how God will keep his promises on the global scale how he's going to work through his anointed king and draw people to worship him. In other words, 1 Samuel will show us God's kingdom agenda and God's worship agenda. So we need this book. Without it, we won't know what it's like to live under King Jesus and to draw near to God through him. Without understanding this book, we won't know how to do that in the way God wants us to. So, where does this massive story of significant change begin? Well, as Martine read it, probably not where we would have expected. Not where we have started a story. Not with movers or shakers. First one, we meet Elkanah. He's solid but unspectacular with his genealogy. But the story's not even about him. I have three scenes for us to see as we think about this story. Here's the first one, scene one. God puts the spotlight on Hannah's small, sad story. God puts the spotlight on Hannah's small, sad story. That's the surprise. This story of God's kingdom agenda and worship agenda begins here. Not with the great men of history, not even with a man at all, but with a barren, hopeless woman, Hannah. I wonder if anyone here is called Hannah. If, if you know, Hannah n- means grace or, or favoured one. And this Hannah is favoured I- in some ways. She's married to a, a well-to-do, well-off husband. He can support two wives. A- and more excitingly, I suppose, Elkanah is a worshipper. He's keeping his vow every year, going to Shiloh. If you know what men are like in the book of Judges, Hannah is actually doing pretty well. And yet... Her sorrow is right there in verse 2. Elkanah had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. She knew the deep grief of childlessness. Wanting to have children, trying to have children, and not being able to. And That might be a grief that some of us tonight are living through. And if that's you, it's a really hard time of year. Christmas with all those stories of of miracle births, and yet it seems so far from your experience. And perhaps conversations with with family, well-meaning comments that end up being so hurtful, questions that just rub salt into the wounds. If that's you, Hannah knows that grief intimately, and God does too. In fact, he's putting a spotlight on that here because That pain matters to him. He sees it. And yet, there's an uncomfortable and painful detail. Repeated, verse 5 and in verse 6, the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed the womb. The sovereign Lord, creator of all things, upholding everything moment by moment, he's the one who's responsible. Well, how do you respond to that? There are different responses in our passage. Elkanah, the husband, his response is sympathy. Verse 5, he loves Hannah and shows it. Verse 8, in her grief, he tries to console her. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And At this point, it's traditional for preachers to, to give Elkanah a bit of a kicking. What a, what a silly man. Doesn't he know? He shouldn't be? Well, he's not perfect. Who is? But can't you see? How much he cares for her. Can't you see how, how difficult it is for him that he can't make it right for his wife and can't make the sadness go away? His response is sympathy. Paninna's response is cruelty. She provokes Hannah, quite probably because she sees how loved Hannah is by Elkanah and it gets to her. By the way, this is an example of how taking multiple wives although common in the Old Testament, was never a good thing. There's always a deviation from God's purpose for marriage to be a lifelong, one-flesh union between one man and one woman. And deviating from that causes this kind of bitter pain. And so Peninnah is is rubbing salt into the wounds. She's taunting. Have a look at verse 6. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. So there they are in Shiloh, gone up for the feast. Everyone is celebrating, and Elkanah is looking around a crowded family table, and Hannah is feeling emptier than ever. And God puts his spotlight on her. God starts the story with her. I don't know about you, but if I were there at the time, I would never have looked at Hannah as where God's work of redemption was going to begin. For one thing, that's just too small. Yes, it's sad, but come on, this is just one woman's personal grief, isn't it? And for another thing, it is too sad. And the truth is we find grief uncomfortable. We move away from it, actually. And so I think I'd have gone looking at something a bit more promising. I probably would have gone looking for the, the movers and shakers. And you know what? I would have missed what God is doing. Because right here in Hannah's grief and hopelessness, God wants to begin And if you know what God has been doing ever since Genesis, then you'll know a barren woman and a hopeless situation is just where God loves to roll up his sleeves and get to work. And that takes us to scene two. Scene two. Hannah puts her sorrow into the story of God's faithfulness. Hannah puts her sorrow into the story of God's faithfulness. Elkanah responds with sympathy. Peninnah with cruelty, but Hannah responds differently. Verse 9, the meal is over. She gets up, and she goes to the house of God, passing Eli, the priest, in the doorway. And then verse 10, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Hannah's response is prayer, and she is a wonderful example of faith. In faith, Hannah knows there's nowhere else to go but God. And she wants to go nowhere else but Him. And so she finds before God space to be who she is. In fact, to bring all of her grief to pray an anguished real prayer. There in verse 10 and 11, you see Hannah's remarkable tears and remarkable words remarkable tears which show us the freedom she has in prayer to pour herself out. This is not prim and proper, well-behaved Anglican praying. This is someone so moved that Eli thinks that she's drunk. And we can learn a lot from that. It shows us how precious honesty in prayer is to God, more precious, dare I say, than eloquence or even than routine. If tonight, all you have to bring to God are tears or sorrow or silence. God says, bring it on. Hannah's tears show us he can handle that. He welcomes it. Her tears are remarkable. And verse 11, her words are remarkable because they show us in prayer how she is putting herself into the story of God's faithfulness. Verse 11, she said, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery, and that's the same word from Exodus to talk about the affliction, the misery of Israel in Egypt. She goes on to say, and remember me, and do not forget your servant. And when God intervenes in Egypt, in the Exodus, the Bible says he remembered his people. See what Hannah's doing. She's putting herself and her sorrows into the story of God's faithfulness. She's praying with her Bible open in her heart when she talks about not letting a razor touch her son's head. That's number six, and the Nazarite vow, setting yourself apart for God. This is remarkable. Hannah is not giving her circumstances the last word, but she's putting her sorrows into the unfolding story of God's faithfulness. She's taking her stand on the promise-keeping character of God. And again, she's a wonderful example to us of how to pray. We too, in prayer, can take hold of God's promises and take our stand on what he said. Claim our place in his story of faithfulness. And amazingly, as we heard it when Martine read, her prayer is answered. And actually, there is an unpromising start there in verses 13 and 14. Eli thinks that she's drunk. I'm going to see more about Eli and his terrible, chaotic sons as 1 Samuel develops. But this already tells you how Shiloh is doing as a sanctuary. Things are so far gone. The priest doesn't know the difference between prayer and drunkenness. And yet, Hannah corrects her. Verse 15 Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. She corrects Eli. And this is remarkable. Eli doesn't get her. Peninnah can't stand her. Elkanah can't help her. But God has heard her. God has understood her. And she has a place before him. And now Eli's been corrected, he gives her a blessing, and Hannah responds in wonderful faith, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And did you notice as Martine read, everything changes for her in that moment. No more tears, now she can eat some food, she's full of joy, even though there's no sign yet that her prayer has been answered. There's real faith at this point. She gets up the next morning, joyfully worships with Elkanah, they head back to Ramah, and verse 19, we read there, the Lord remembered her, just as she asked, the Lord remembered her. And verse 20, we read, in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. I remember what a big deal pregnancy and birth was in my family. It was a big deal, birth plans, birth playlists, but here, all in one sentence. Why? Why? Because the focus is not so much on Hannah's experience of becoming a mother, but on God's goodness in answering her prayer. And that's not just my opinion, that's how Hannah sees it too. Because look at the name she gives her boy. Verse 20, she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Hannah puts her sorrow into the story of God's faithfulness as she prays. And the Lord remembered her. She experienced God's life-giving creative power filling up the emptiness of her womb. And she experienced God's covenant faithfulness because she said to him, remember me. She said that as an Israelite, a member of the people of God, and he did. And maybe you think to yourself, maybe the story could stop there. It was a long reading, Niv. Do we have to keep going? Surely this is it. This is the stuff of wonderful testimonies at the front of church. This is the ideal before and after, isn't it? Before Hannah weeping and taunted, after Hannah joyful, Hannah vindicated, Hannah an amazing mother. But you know what? The story hasn't yet reached its climax because this isn't just a story about God granting wishes. And we have to see that Because if we don't, we'll think that God is basically just a cosmic butler, and prayer is only successful when we get what we want. No, something more is going on. All of this is building towards scene three. Scene three, Hannah puts God's gift back into his hands. Hannah puts God's gift back into his hands. Verse 21, she doesn't go back to Shiloh, and maybe we're worried for a second. Elkanah is going to keep his vow, isn't Hannah? She is, but she wants to do it right. She says she's going to wean Samuel, and then, verse 22, she says, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. This is a surprise to us. If we thought that Samuel was a self-fulfillment baby, and that Hannah was asking for him because really all she wanted was an end to her childlessness. That's not what's going on here because Hannah, the moment she gets him, knows exactly what she wants to do. Give him back to the Lord. Take the gift she received and put it back in the Lord's hands. That's surprising. Samuel isn't really for Hannah. He's actually for God. And that's why her ambition for him... It's that he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This makes sense if we know why barrenness is so painful specifically in the Bible. It's because over and over, God's salvation promises hinge on offspring. Genesis 3, the offspring of Eve, the son who will crush the serpent's head. Genesis 12, the, the offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations will be blessed. So if you are a Bible woman and you are barren... It looks as if you have been cut out of God's purposes, like you have no place in what he's doing. That's why Hannah prayed for vindication, and that's why her barrenness isn't over just because Samuel's born. The story of her barrenness ends when she brings him to the Lord and puts the gift she's been given back in God's hands. So that's what she does Verse 24, waits till he's weaned, so he might be, people think, about three years old at this point, and then takes him with Elkanah and with all kinds of lavish offerings to the temple to give him back to God. She goes and makes a beeline for Eli to tell him who she is and what God has done for her. Verse 27, I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So... Now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord. The bull was slaughtered, the flour and wine eaten and drunk, but Samuel will remain as a living sacrifice. That Nazarite vow from number six that Hannah alluded to in her prayer, that was usually a temporary thing. But Hannah has set Samuel apart for God, for life. She gets the child she asked for and knows exactly what to do with him, puts him right back in God's hands. She cried out in her misery, and God responded to her in the downward movement of grace. And what does she do? She responds with the upward movement of gratitude, giving back to God the blessing of her son. And that's why this story climaxes in verse 28 the end of the sentence, and he, that Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. That's also what makes this story not just one woman's discovery of God's grace, but something of national, even international significance, something that sets in motion changes you and I live with, that mark our praying and our singing and our life in God. Because now Samuel is at Shiloh, that means that God has a faithful worshipper in Shiloh at last, and as the chapters go on, we're going to see what Samuel grows up to become. It turns out that Samuel is not just God's gift to Hannah, but because Hannah put him in God's hands, he will be God's gift to Israel as well. And that's probably why God puts the spotlight on Hannah. At the start of this book, Hannah is a good one-woman picture of Israel. She's hopeless and helpless and provoked by a rival, just like Israel were threatened by the Philistines around them and under their oppression. But 1 Samuel 1 tells us she was not forsaken, not for the first time in the Bible, and not for the last, God would intervene, providing a miracle baby to give his people a hope and a future. And through Hannah, this evening, God is showing us how near he is to the brokenhearted, How precious our tears are to Him. How even in terrible hopelessness, His almighty power means that sorrow will not get the last word. She's a wonderful invitation to us to pray to the Lord. And let me say, He may not answer our prayers exactly the way He answers Hannah's. It was really wonderful to hear from Tim what he learned from the experience of prayer that doesn't get answered straightforwardly. And can I say, particularly to those of us here who do long for children but cannot have them, Hannah is not a stick for you to beat yourself with. Childlessness is not something that happens to you because you haven't prayed enough, not at all. The pain of childlessness is not something we can explain away like that so cheaply. But all of us can join with Hannah and follow her lead in throwing ourselves on God's promise keeping Faithfulness, And in fact, all of us this evening have so much more to go on than she ever did, because we have seen what God's promise-keeping faithfulness goes on to do, and we have seen, and sung about a lot recently, the ultimate miracle birth, not just a barren woman, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, and the good news is, in Him, in Jesus, Whether we have children or not, we are not cut out of God's family. We have a place in what he is doing that no one can ever take away. That's what Hannah can show us this evening. Now, as we finish, there are so many ways in which we can draw on her example and what God is saying to us. Maybe you need to hear that invitation to bring your tears before the Lord. Maybe you need to hear that call to put yourself in in God's story of faithfulness. But as we close, I just want us to think a little bit more on the way Hannah gives the gift of Samuel back to God. Because Hannah shows us what to do with answered prayer and how we should ask. There's a little bit of wordplay going on in verses 27 to 28. You can't spot it in this translation, but in the Hebrew, the word for ask comes up four times. I prayed for this child, granted me what I asked of him, that's twice, and then he shall be given to the Lord, that's the word for asked again. Why the repetition? Well, at one level, Hannah's saying, I asked for this boy, but more is going on here. One Samuel will say a lot about the things we ask for. And so I guess the challenge I have for all of us in our prayers is this. What are you asking for for? Later in 1 Samuel, we're going to see the people of Israel ask God for something. They're going to ask him for a king, a king on their terms, a king just the way they want him. And the tragedy is they will get that king. God will answer that prayer. They will have Saul, whose name means asked for one, and under his rule they will suffer. Why does it go wrong? Because they're not like Hannah, and they're not asking God the way Hannah is. What is, God asking? What is. what is Hannah asking God for? Samuel, a son. But what is she asking for? For, what does she want this boy for? To give him back to God, to respond to God's downward movement of grace with that upward movement of gratitude and worship and praise. And that sets a wonderful model for each of us. What do we ask God for for? What will we do with what he gives us? Ask yourself that. In your prayers, if God were to answer you and give you what you asked for, what would you do with it? What is it for? Hannah models to us the gratitude that gives back to God all he gives us. To quote David, All things come from you, O Lord, and of your own do we give you. Or or Paul in Colossians 3, verse 17, where he says there, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's the response of the gospel, that upward movement of gratitude. Because here's the thing, nothing we keep for ourselves is ever all it could be. But whatever we put in God's hands finds lasting value, becomes part of what he is doing in eternity. In fact, becomes more than we could ever have dreamt, just like Samuel does. So as we finish, think about the prayers you're praying at the moment. What are you asking for for? If God gave you what you asked for, what would you do with it? Will you seek to put the gifts he gives you? Back in his hands by offering them to him in a life of worship and gratitude. Not putting them in his hands so that they're lost. Nothing we put in his hands ever is lost in the end. So that they may become everything he longs for them to be. I want to give us a quiet moment just to reflect on that last thing, and then I'll lead us in a prayer before our final song. Lord God, thank you for showing us in your word how near you are to broken-hearted Hannah, how open your ears are to her cries, how powerful you are to act where everything seemed hopeless. Thank you for how in Jesus we have seen you do all of those things still more wonderfully. Help us in response to that wonderful downward movement of your grace to come before you and offer back to you in gratitude all that you've given. We ask it in Jesus' name.
0: Amen.